This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Moth by H.G. Wells. It's read by Peter Bishop, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The story runs 24 minutes. The Moth by H.G. Wells. Narrated by Peter Bishop. Probably you have heard of Hapley. Not W.T. Hapley, the son, but the celebrated Hapley. The Hapley of Periplanata Haplia. Hapley, the entomologist. If so, you know at least of the great feud between Hapley and Professor Porkins, though certain of its consequences may be new to you. For those who have not, a word or two of explanation is necessary, which the idle reader may go over with a glancing eye, if his indolence so incline him. It is amazing how very widely diffused is the ignorance of such really important matters as this Hapley-Porkins feud. Those epoch-making controversies, again, that have convulsed the geological society, are, I verily believe, almost entirely unknown outside the fellowship of that body. I have heard men of fair general education even refer to the great scenes at these meetings as vestry-meeting squabbles. Yet the great hate of the English and Scotch geologists has lasted now half a century, and has left deep and abundant marks upon the body of the science. And this Hapley Porkins business, though perhaps a more personal affair, stirred passions as profound, if not profounder. Your common man has no conception of the zeal that animates a scientific investigator, the fury of contradiction you can arouse in him. It is the odium theologicum in a new form. There are men, for instance, who would gladly burn Professor Ray Lancaster at Smithfield for his treatment of the mollusca in the encyclopedia that fantastic extension of the cellophods to cover the pteropods. But I wander from Hapley and Porkins. It began years and years ago with the revision of the Microlepidoptera, whatever these may be, by Porkins, in which he extinguished a new species created by Hapley. Hapley, who was always quarrelsome, replied by a stinging impeachment of the entire classification of Porkins. Porkins, in his rejoinder, suggested that Hapley's microscope was as defective as his power of observation and called him an irresponsible meddler. Hapley was not a professor at that time. Hapley, in his retort, spoke of blundering collectors and described, as if inadvertently, Porkins' revision as a miracle of ineptitude. It was war to the knife. However, it would scarcely interest the reader to detail how these two great men quarrelled and how the split between them widened until from the Microlepidoptera they were at war upon every open question in entomology. These were memorable occasions. At times the Royal Entomological Society meetings resembled nothing so much as the Chamber of Deputies. On the whole, I fancy Porkins was nearer the truth than Hapley, but Hapley was skilful with his rhetoric, had a turn for ridicule rare in a scientific man, was endowed with vast energy, and had a fine sense of injury in the matter of the extinguished species. While Porkins was a man of dull presence, prosy of speech, in shape not unlike a water-barrel, over-conscientious with testimonials, and suspected of jobbing museum appointments. So the young men gathered around Hapley and applauded him. It was a long struggle, vicious from the beginning, and growing at last to pitiless antagonism. The successive turns of fortune, now an advantage to one side and now to another, 
now Hapley tormented by some success of Porkins, and now Porkins outshone by Hapley, belong rather to the history of entomology than to this story. But in 1891, Porkins, whose health had been bad for some time, published some work upon the mesoblast of the Death's Head Moth. What the mesoblast of the Death's Head Moth may be does not matter a rap in this story. But the work was far below his usual standard and gave Hapley an opening he had coveted for years. He must have worked night and day to make the most of his advantage. In an elaborate critique, he rent Porkins to tatters. One can fancy the man's disordered black hair and his queer dark eyes flashing as he went for his antagonist. And Porkins made a reply, halting, ineffectual, with painful gaps of silence, and yet malignant. There was no mistaking his will to wound Hapley, nor his incapacity to do it. But few of those who heard him, I was absent from that meeting, realized how ill the man was. Hapley got his opponent down and meant to finish him. He followed with a simply brutal attack upon Porkins, in the form of a paper upon the development of moths in general, a paper showing evidence of a most extraordinary amount of mental labor, and yet couched in a violently controversial tone. Violent as it was, an editorial note witnesses that it was modified. It must have covered Porkins with shame and confusion of face. It left no loophole. It was murderous in argument and utterly contemptuous in tone, an awful thing for the declining years of a man's career. The world of entomologists waited breathlessly for the rejoinder from Porkins. He would try one, for Porkins had always been game. But when it came, it surprised them, for the rejoinder of Porkins was to catch influenza, proceed to pneumonia, and die. It was, perhaps, as effectual a reply as he could make under the circumstances, and largely turned the current of feeling against Hapley. The very people who had most gleefully cheered on those gladiators became serious at the consequence. There could be no reasonable doubt the fret of the defeat had contributed to the death of Porkins. There was a limit even to scientific controversy, said serious people. Another crushing attack was already in the press and appeared on the day before the funeral. I don't think Hapley exerted himself to stop it. People remembered how Hapley had hounded down his rival and forgot that rival's defects. Scathing satire reads ill over fresh mould. The thing provoked comment in the daily papers. This it was that made me think you had probably heard of Hapley and this controversy. But, as I have already remarked, scientific workers live very much in a world of their own. Half the people, I dare say, who go along to Piccadilly to the Academy every year could not tell you where the learned societies abide. Many even think that research is a kind of happy family cage in which all kinds of men lie down together in peace. In his private thoughts, Hapley could not forgive Porkins for dying. In the first place, it was a mean dodge to escape the absolute pulverization Hapley had in hand for him, and in the second, it left Hapley's mind with a queer gap in it. For twenty years he had worked hard, sometimes far into the night and seven days a week with microscope, scalpel, collecting net and pen and almost entirely with reference to Porkins. The European reputation he had won had come as an incident in that great antipathy. He had gradually worked up to a climax in this last controversy. It had killed Porkins, but it had also thrown Hapley out of gear, so to speak, and his doctor advised him to give up work for a time and rest. 
so Hackley went down to a quiet village in Kent and thought day and night of Porkins and good things it was now impossible to say about him. At last Hapley began to realise in what direction the preoccupation tended. He determined to make a fight for it, and started by trying to read novels. But he could not get his mind off Porkins, white in the face and making his last speech, every sentence a beautiful opening for Hapley. He turned to fiction and found it had no grip on him. He read the Island Nights Entertainments until his sense of causation was shocked beyond endurance by the bottle imp. Then he went to Kipling and found he proved nothing besides being irreverent and vulgar. These scientific people have their limitations. Then, unhappily, he tried Bassant's In a House, and the opening chapter set his mind upon learned societies and Porkins at once. So Hapley turned to chess and found it a little more soothing. He soon mastered the moves and the chief gambits and the commoner closing positions and began to beat the vicar. But then the cylindrical contours of the opposite king began to resemble Porkins standing up and gasping ineffectually against checkmate, and Hapley decided to give up chess. Perhaps the study of some new branch of science would after all be better diversion. The best rest is a change of occupation. Hapley determined to plunge at diatoms and had one of his smaller microscopes and Halibut's monograph sent down from London. He thought that perhaps if he could get up a vigorous quarrel with Halibut, he might be able to begin life afresh and forget Porkins. And very soon he was hard at work in his habitual strenuous fashion at these microscopic denizens of the wayside pool. It was on the third day of the diatoms that Hapley became aware of a novel addition to the local fauna. He was working late at the microscope, and the only light in the room was the brilliant little lamp with a special form of green shade. Like all experienced microscopists, he kept both eyes open. It is the only way to avoid excessive fatigue. One eye was over the instrument, and bright and distinct before that was the circular field of the microscope, across which a brown diatom was slowly moving. With the other eye happily saw, as it were, without seeing. He was only dimly conscious of the brass side of the instrument, the illuminated part of the tablecloth, a sheet of notepaper, the foot of the lamp, and the darkened room beyond. Suddenly, his attention drifted from one eye to the other. The tablecloth was of the material called tapestry by Shopman, and rather brightly coloured. The pattern was in gold, with a small amount of crimson and pale blue upon a greyish ground. At one point the pattern seemed displaced, and there was a vibrating movement of the colours at this point. Hapley suddenly moved his head back and looked with both eyes. His mouth fell open with astonishment. It was a large moth or butterfly, its wings spread in butterfly fashion. It was strange it should be in the room at all, for the windows were closed. Strange that it should not have attracted his attention when fluttering to its present position. Strange that it should match the tablecloth. Stranger far that to him, Hapley, the great entomologist, it was altogether unknown. There was no delusion. It was crawling slowly towards the foot of the lamp. New genus, by heavens, and in England, said Hapley, staring. Then he suddenly thought of Porkins. Nothing would have maddened Porkins more. And Porkins was dead. Something about the head and body of the insect became singularly suggestive of Porkins, just as the chess king had been. Confound Porkins, said Hapley, 
but I must catch this. And looking round for some means of capturing the moth, he rose slowly out of his chair. Suddenly the insect rose, struck the edge of the lampshade, haply heard the ping, and vanished into the shadow. In a moment haply had whipped off the shade, so that the whole room was illuminated. The thing had disappeared, but soon his practised eye detected it upon the wallpaper near the door. He went towards it, poising the lampshade for capture. Before he was within striking distance, however, it had risen and was fluttering around the room. After the fashion of its kind, it flew with sudden starts and turns, seeming to vanish here and reappear there, once haply struck and missed, then again. The third time he hit his microscope. The instrument swayed, struck, and overturned the lamp, and fell noisily upon the floor. The lamp turned over on the table and, very luckily, went out. Haply was left in the dark. With a start, he felt the strange moth blunder into his face. It was maddening. He had no lights. If he opened the door of the room, the thing would get away. In the darkness, he saw Porkins quite distinctly laughing at him. Porkins had ever an oily laugh. He swore furiously and stamped his foot on the floor. There was a timid rapping at the door. Then it opened, perhaps a foot, and very slowly. The alarmed face of the landlady appeared behind a pink candle flame. She wore a nightcap over her grey hair and had some purple garment over her shoulders. What was that fearful smash? she said. Has anything? The strange moth appeared fluttering about the chink of the door. Shut that door! said Hapley, and suddenly rushed at her. The door slammed hastily. Hapley was left alone in the dark. Then in the pause he heard his landlady scuttle upstairs, lock her door, and drag something heavy across the room and put against it. It became evident to Hapley that his conduct and appearance had been strange and alarming. Confound the moth! And Porkins! However, it was a pity to lose the moth now. He felt his way into the hall and found the matches, after sending his hat down upon the floor with a noise like a drum. With the lighted candle he returned to the sitting-room. No moth was to be seen, yet once, for a moment, it seemed that the thing was fluttering around his head. Haply very suddenly decided to give up the moth and go to bed. But he was excited. All night long his sleep was broken by dreams of the moth, Porkins and his landlady. Twice in the night he turned out and soused his head in cold water. One thing was very clear to him. His landlady could not possibly understand about the strange moth, especially as he had failed to catch it. No one but an entomologist would understand quite how he felt. She was probably frightened at his behavior, and yet he failed to see how he could explain it. He decided to say nothing further about the events of last night. After breakfast, he saw her in the garden and decided to go out and talk, to reassure her. He talked to her about beans and potatoes, bees, caterpillars, and the price of fruit. She replied in her usual manner, but she looked at him a little suspiciously and kept walking as he walked, so that there would always be a bed of flowers or a row of beans or something of the sort between them. After a while, he began to feel singularly irritated at this and to conceal his vexation, went indoors, and presently went out for a walk. The moth, or butterfly, trailing an odd flavour of porkins with it, kept coming into that walk, though he did his best to keep his mind off it. Once he saw it quite distinctly, 
with its wings flattened out upon the old stone wall that runs along the west edge of the park. But going up to it, he found it was only two lumps of grey and yellow lichen. This, said Hackley, is the reverse of mimicry. Instead of a butterfly looking like a stone, here is a stone looking like a butterfly. Once something hovered and fluttered around his head, but by an effort of will he drove that impression out of his mind again. In the afternoon, Hapley called upon the vicar and argued with him upon theological questions. They sat in the little arbour covered with briar and smoked as they wrangled. Look at that moth, said Hapley suddenly, pointing to the edge of the wooden table. Where? said the vicar. You don't see a moth on the edge of the table there, said Hapley. Certainly not, said the vicar. Hapley was thunderstruck, he gasped. The vicar was staring at him. Clearly the man saw nothing. The eye of faith is no better than the eye of science, said Hapley awkwardly. I don't see your point, said the vicar, thinking it was part of the argument. That night Hapley found the moth crawling over his counterpane. He sat on the edge of the bed in his shirt sleeves and reasoned with himself. Was it pure hallucination? He knew he was slipping, and he battled for his sanity with the same silent energy he had formerly displayed against Porkins. So persistent is mental habit that he felt as if it was still a struggle with Porkins. He was well versed in psychology. He knew that such visual illusions do come as a result of mental strain. But the point was, he did not only see the moth, he had heard it when it had touched the edge of the lampshade, and afterwards when it hit against the wall, and he had felt it strike his face in the dark. He looked at it. It was not at all dreamlike, but perfectly clear and solid-looking in the candlelight. He saw the hairy body and the short, feathery antennae, the jointed legs, even a place where the down was rubbed from the wing. He suddenly felt angry with himself for being afraid of a little insect. His landlady had got the servant to sleep with her that night because she was afraid to be alone. In addition, she had locked the door and put the chest of drawers against it. They listened and talked in whispers after they had gone to bed, but nothing occurred to alarm them. About eleven, they had ventured to put the candle out and had both dozed off to sleep. They woke up with a start and sat up in bed, listening in the darkness. Then they heard slippered feet going to and fro in Hapley's room. A chair was overturned, and there was a violent dab at the wall. Then a china mantel ornament smashed upon the fender. Suddenly the door of the room opened, and they heard him upon the landing. They clung to one another, listening. He seemed to be dancing upon the staircase. Now he would go down three or four steps quickly, then up again, then hurry down into the hall. They heard the umbrella stand go over and the fan light break. Then the bolt shot and the chain rattled. He was opening the door. They hurried to the window. It was a dim grey night. An almost unbroken sheet of watery cloud was sweeping across the moon, and the hedge and the trees in front of the house were black against the pale roadway. They saw Hapley, looking like a ghost in his shirt and white trousers, running to and fro in the road and beating the air. Now he would stop. Now he would dart very rapidly at something invisible. Now he would move upon it with stealthy strides. At last he went out of sight up the road towards the down. Then, while they argued who should go down and lock the door, he returned. He was walking very fast, and he came straight into the house, 
closed the door carefully and went quietly up to his bedroom. Then everything was silent. Mrs. Colville, said Hapley, calling down the staircase next morning, I hope I did not alarm you last night. You may well ask that, said Mrs. Colville. The fact is, I am a sleepwalker, and the last two nights I have been without my sleeping mixture. There is nothing to be alarmed about, really. I am sorry I made such an ass of myself. I will go over the down to Shoreham and get some stuff to make me sleep soundly. I ought to have done that yesterday. But halfway over the down, by the chalk pits, the moth came upon Hapley again. He went on, trying to keep his mind upon chess problems, but it was no good. The thing fluttered into his face, and he struck at it with his hat in self-defense. Then rage, the old rage, the rage he had so often felt against Porkins, came upon him again. He went on, leaping and striking at the eddying insect. Suddenly, he trod on nothing and fell headlong. There was a gap in his sensations, and Hapley found himself sitting on the heap of flints in front of the opening of the chalk pits, with a leg twisted back under him. The strange moth was still fluttering around his head. He struck at it with his hand, and turning his head saw two men approaching him. One was the village doctor. It occurred to Hapley that this was lucky. Then it came into his mind with extraordinary vividness that no one would ever be able to see the strange moth except himself, and that it behooved him to keep silent about it. Late that night, however, after his broken leg was set, he was feverish and forgot his self-restraint. He was lying flat on his bed, and he began to run his eyes around the room to see if the moth was still about. He tried not to do this, but it was no good. He soon caught sight of the thing resting close to his hand by the nightlight on the green tablecloth. The wings quivered. With a sudden wave of anger, he smote at it with his fist, and the nurse woke up with a shriek. He had missed it. That moth, he said, and then, it was a fancy, nothing. All the time he could see quite clearly the insect going round the cornice and darting across the room, and he could also see that the nurse saw nothing of it and looked at him strangely. He must keep himself in hand. He knew he was a lost man if he did not keep himself in hand. But, as the night waned, the fever grew upon him, and the very dread he had of seeing the moth made him see it. About five, just as the dawn was grey, he tried to get out of bed and catch it, though his leg was afire with pain. The nurse had to struggle with him. On account of this, they tied him down to the bed. At this, the moth grew bolder, and once he felt it settle in his hair. Then, because he struck out violently with his arms, they tied these also. At this the moth came and crawled over his face, and haply wept, swore, screamed, prayed for them to take it off him, unavailingly. The doctor was a blockhead, a just-qualified general practitioner, and quite ignorant of mental science. He simply said there was no moth. Had he possessed the wit, he might still, perhaps, have saved Hapley from his fate by entering into his delusion and covering his face with gauze as he prayed might be done. But, as I say, the doctor was a blockhead, and until the leg was healed, Hapley was kept tied to his bed, and with the imaginary moth crawling over him. It never left him while he was awake, and it grew to a monster in his dreams. While he was awake, he longed for sleep, and from sleep, he awoke screaming.
So now Hapley is spending the remainder of his days in a padded room, worried by a moth that no one else can see. The asylum doctor calls it hallucination, but Hapley, when he is in an easier mood and can talk, says it is the ghost of Porkins, and consequently a unique specimen and well worth the trouble of catching. This has been The Moth by H.G. Wells, narrated by Peter Bishop. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about uh, the story you all just heard, which is called The Moth, a.k.a. A Moth, uh, subtitled, what is it, a Novo Genus yes. or Genus Novo, which means like new species, I think. Yes, it does. Or something like that. I mean, it's kind of confusing. The genus is not species, but maybe back back when this was written around 1895, they were not as clear on that, or maybe it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um <laughs> It, it, it seemed to have been published in 1895, although uh, looking for the actual issue that it was supposed to be in, we have not been able to find it. I did find a 1905 reprint um, with beautiful illustrations, and I will link to that. But um, this is a story I hadn't even heard of. I thought I thought when I was offered The Moth, I thought I was being offered the story by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, which is called, a.k.a. The Sphinx, which uh, it's not this story. So is it, have you guys heard of this story before? No, no but I, I'd not know. It's, I think it's been forgotten because, you know, I'm, I'm big into H.G. Wells, and I yeah. know he's written a lot of short stories, but this one, I mean, it is in some collections, but it's not, it's not one of the ones that people um, point to at all. And I, I kind of see why. What did you guys think of it? Um, it's one of those. I find it a bit of a curious story because um, mm-hmm. the way it starts out, I thought, oh, we, we're getting kind of um, Wells with his sort of his tongue in his cheek, mm-hmm. um, in much the way the Wells who gave us the new accelerator and the uh, the flowering of the strange orchid. Mm-hmm. Um, but but by the end, it is actually pretty dark, and the laughs really do dry <laughs> yeah. up. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although it has a punchline at the end, which I mm. think is pretty funny. But uh, <laughs> at the end, the character says. Uh, um, it, it's well worth collecting because it is a new species, <laughs> 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 or whatever. And I'm like that—that's a pretty good punchline. But yeah, I mean, it's—he's insane, right? It's a, it's a morality <laughs> tale too, partly. I guess, yeah. Um, and the narr- the narrate—not the narrator uh, Peter Bishop, but the narrator of the story, the the voice of the of the author in the story is very, uh, he's very much a Wells figure, although he seems to know things um, that would be only in this crazy man's mind, which is also funny. It it doesn't start off that way. It starts with, you know, footnotes and, uh, you know, you don't need to read this part if you're familiar with this guy already. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I, I I was trying to think of comparative stories and I mean, you can tell Wells wrote it because it's got a lot of science. You know, and sort of the science, the 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 fighting of scientists, um, fighting their fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is actually literally, a, a, he says, a knife fight, right? <laughs> the way it's described in the story, they're like wrestling. They're right, you know, right. taking the other down, and, and later on, it, they're called gladiators, right? <laughs> I think. I, I mean, it's pretty awesome what he's he's sort of pointing to in this story. I think is he's saying people don't know what 
science is really like. It's not this, you know, let's all live friendly together and, and discover things. It's more like, I'm going to tear your head off. Shit down your neck. <laughs> the other guy's like, I'll do it to you. Double. Right. Yeah, except Hawkins is kind of ineffectual. You know, and he's yeah. a lot less enthusiastic about it than Happily is. Yeah, and I was thinking about the name Happily. Is he kind of hapless? Is that what happened? I was wondering that too because I was listening to the audio before I read it, so I didn't know you know how it was spelled, or I didn't quite get the names exactly. So it was, yep. it was interesting just hearing them and the resonance they made, and and yeah, and I thought kind of happy, and you know that almost like uh, Fortunatus and Castro mm. Montiato. Mm. Oh sure, kind of, yeah. Ironic reading of that, it. That that is a actually a, a very deft comparison if you think about how it how it plays out. Does Pawkins get his revenge? Is that what's going on here? Because it, it it's classified as a ghost story. It was published in uh, Ghost Story Ghost Stories magazine. Um, it's sort of a fa- fantasy in that respect, uh, but it's it's not exactly science fiction. It's very hard to classify. It is, yeah. Well, it's a touch of everything. It's scientific fiction. Um, mm-hmm. There is a ghost in it, but there is humor in it as well, and it's also a satire <laughs> at the same time. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite unique. It's a story that I think um, is unjustly neglected, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, now, now I've discovered it. It's, it's, the more, yeah, it's one of those stories. Really cool. It seems very simple, but the more you think about mm. it, the more layers sort of peel away because as you say i mean yeah i, th- I think it, it's a very good um story for our age because I, I think we kind of um you know in online culture there's you know there's like a facebook group which is i fucking love science yeah <laughs> oh, yeah science tumblers and they do all this kind of science is great and a lot of what they're prompting about isn't actually very scientific, oh. and um, you know this idea that you know science is the answer to everything, and if you're not scientific, you're nothing, buddy. But um, yeah, it, it's kind of, the truth is, if you look at the history of science, it's kind of it, it's a short history, but it's it's full of feuds, schisms, <laughs> heresies, um, you know, and, and it gets yeah. it does get very very unpleasant. Um, the story you make that always you know shocks me is you know we all take for granted the theory of tectonic plates. Mm. The um, the chap who came that up is, with that theory referenced in this po- in this story, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean he 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 was hounded out of his job, had his career destroyed, <laughs> hounded out of his home. <laughs> you know, he, he died man, miserable man. in penury. He was he was a destroyed man because his his theory was deemed heretical by the scientific paradigm that. of the star. Oh yeah, there's wow, there's there's a whole lot of this goes on in science. I mean, they get these bitter feuds. I mean, there's the, the Isaac the Newton Royal quote as well. Didn't, didn't the Royal Society like there, there was a what's the what's the guy they don't even have a picture of? I was watching Cosmos and they they do a lot of these sort of you know here's a scientist and here's what he or she contributed, mm. and and it was like I think Hook Robert Hook yes yes I mean he yeah. was like he was a he was a horror. Right. Well, he had this, he had this huge, huge feud with Newton, mm-hmm. and um, Newton's famous quote about "I have seen farther because I've stood on the backs of giants" was a dig at Hook, who was a short man, 
Uh, and Newton had this whole range of making digs and mentions about height and dwarves and midgets. And it was all, it was all just a needle hook. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of very ironic that that quote is held up as you know, this lofty ideal of science. Yeah. And it's not. It's Isaac Newton going, screw that short ass. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, there, there's one line in here, a miracle of incompetence or something. <laughs> It was like, wow, these are these are hardcore fighters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they get very, it gets very nasty in science when they fall out. Dear me. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to a um a pod, the Geeks Guide podcast did an interview recently with is his name Lawrence Krauss, um, kind of the American counterpart to Richard Dawkins, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just yeah, that whole philosophy of they're very antithetical to. Uh, doctrinal dogmatic religion and yet there are a whole lot of similarities in their approach and i just found that really interesting well it seems to work out in the end that's the cool thing about science right is is, is this fighting that pawkins and and uh happily are doing i mean presumably we are the benefit in that we know more about microlepidoptera <laughs> which is even even um wells says Wells himself says, or the narrator in the story says, um, whatever they may be, right? It doesn't really matter to the story. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But, I'm just telling the story about these two scientists. But it just means little little moths, right? Tiny moths. Uh, you know, like the size of your thumbnail or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's sort of one of the things that's happening is this moth thing. And by the way, this is the weird thing. is When I first read this story earlier this week... Um, I was like, okay, I'll read it like four or five times between now and then. And then as I was reading other things, like even Tolkien and, um, you know, just non-unrelated stuff, I kept seeing moths, like in in the text. Yeah. And then I'd hear people saying moth, like, I, like I've, it seems like this whole year I haven't heard anything about moth. And now suddenly they're everywhere. And I'm not like joking. This. <laughs> it totally it totally is and and you know the fact that the the vicar can't but see still, them but yeah it's funny it is it, it's like it, it's kind of creepy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's inside you because i was trying to think well you know there is one line early on um and it's quite revealing cuz this is the you know if you're talk about uh horror movies or this sort of thriller movie, right? everybody remembers Silence of the Lambs, and the mm. symbol that's used in the poster, and I think actually in the movie as well, is the death's head moth, right? Which yep. is a mm-hmm. moth with a picture of a skull on its on its abdomen, I guess. Mm. Um, and that's mentioned early on. That says, uh, in 1891, Pawkins, whose health had been bad for some time, published some work upon the mesoblast of the death's head moth. Uh, what the mesoblast of the death's head moth may be does not matter a rap to this story. And the thing is, is he's saying, don't look at this, right? He just did this. It doesn't matter. But actually, I think it's a foreshadowing. Subconsciously, it makes the story work. Because mm-hmm. I think the mesoblast is, is um, could be wrong about this, but I believe it's the stage, uh, what you would call the undifferentiated cells inside of the chrysalis. Before it becomes the death's head moth, right? It doesn't start off as a death's head moth. It starts off as, a, uh, I don't know, some sort of crawling wormy thing, right? What are they called? Caterpillar. 
Caterpillar! Starts off as a caterpillar and turns into a, a moth. <laughs> the mesoblast is the is the changing so it's like Pawkins is transformed, right? In his death. He doesn't die. He dies, but he doesn't just die. He is transformed into this moth that nobody else can see <laughs> and that happily can't catch. Well, so going back to the name, I mean, I listened to the audio first, mm-hmm. and just hearing it, Pawkins, I mean, I mean, I think, this is, I think Star Wars is to blame for this, but oh, I, I heard it as P-O-R-K, Pawkins. and it kind of, you know, you have this yeah. idea, yeah, this yeah, sort of fat, too. jolly professor who's, you know, had, like, uh, had two, the shape you know, of a water bell, yeah, barrel, right? yeah. yeah, and, you know, who's overindulged and dies before he can decently finish his argument. But when you read the text and you see it's spelled P-A-W and Pawkins, and you think you're a relative of something with paws, and it's kind of, mm-hmm. it is kind of, if it is his revenge, the the moth, rather than uh, Happy's own guilt, it is kind of right. like, you know, it's, he's being toyed with. You know, it is like a psychological game of cat and mouse, of this moth <laughs> just, you know, drives him round the bend. I mean, there's a similar uh, Sheridan J. Lafanu story called Green Tea, Mm. Uh, about a vicar who has this per- recurring, persistent hallucination of this monkey huh. um, huh. That, that dogs him, and you know, in that, it's very clearly that the, the monkey is a person of is a, like you know uh, an entity that is symbolising his guilt. Um, the other, remember rightly, we never actually find out what the vicar had did, done, but the, you know, it came out as these visions of this monkey that tormented him and, <laughs> and broke his sanity. Um, and you know, it's kind of, that's another reading for this story. Is it you know, is it Pawkins' yeah. spirit as a moth, or is it Hapley's guilt coming can it, out can as a moth? Half half, I don't know. But oh, what probably. I think that yeah. was, it, 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 it's like it, what's funny is the death of Pawkins actually is the trigger for his you know his problem. He goes to the doctor's ex and says, "Go take a break," right? You know, goes and learns chess. He tries to read novels. Can't do, can't do anything. And and everything's fine until is he, he's good at chess. And then he starts seeing the opposing king uh, as he, as Pawkins, right? So it's not like it's only the moth, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's like he's being haunted from. And and the way it's described, like he would, it's almost like a romance too, because these guys would spend hours and hours thinking about each other. Staying up late into the night, burning the candles, you know, <laughs> right. studying, studying these things, and then uh, the guy's dead, and it's like, okay. One point he says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna study up on these. What, what are they called? Um, little tiny unicellular water? Oh, diatoms. Diatoms, right? And he says, I'll, I'll get up a feud with, uh, with, yeah. with the fish guy, Halibut. <laughs> I'll get up a feud with Halibut, and that'll that'll do me right. But it doesn't work yeah. out. Oh yeah, it says he he thought perhaps if he could get up a vigorous quarrel with Halibut, <laughs> he might be able to begin life afresh and forget Pawkins. And very soon he was hard at work in a habitual strenuous fashion at the microscope, uh, denizen, uh, looking at the denizens of the wayside pool. <laughs> he he's not even like interested in, in these things. Right? He's just no. I'm gonna show him how he's wrong. In that in that sense, um it's totally a typical uh well story in that he has super horrible main characters. Um this guy is he's 
he's pretty horrific guy. <laughs> Just trying to make another guy <laughs> yeah, nice, a misery. Yeah. You can imagine, you know, when he's not actually feuding with scientists, he's writing really strident letters to the press. Sure. <laughs> you know, he's a he is annoyed of Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> Dear sir, I'm reporting uh, his neighbors for uh, yeah for <laughs> yeah growing their hedges too high against planning yes, regulations yeah it seems to be a real thing in people right this is not a totally oh, yeah. impossible story no no not at all unfortunately but and yeah it, it seems it, like his landlady is already afraid of him because um, it seems like her reaction to just the, his initial yeah like that crash that would have been, you know, her initial reaction would have been, I would think, oh, are you okay? Is it? And she's like, oh, shoot, this guy's off his rocker again or, or something. You get <laughs> again, the impression yeah. that this is not the first. Storming in and out, uh, mad at people, yeah. And then later she has someone stay with her, and it's kind of, yeah. That's quite dark as well, because I got the impression kind of think, his landlady's terrified, because she's thinking, he's finally lost it. He's funny. He's going to uh, put yeah. down the pen and yeah. pick up the axe, you know what I mean? This is <laughs> totally. <laughs> and then he made. He 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 says to her. He he knows he's acting. His behavior seems odd. He even says nobody else can see this moth, right? Um, <laughs> but it doesn't occur to him that it's not real. But uh, uh, then again, if you're actually seeing it, then it is real, right? So he's he's sort of half insane and half not insane. Um, and that that in or ma- manic is that what it is? It, it, he's like he's seeing it, and then when. When the circumstances occur, so he goes up to he goes up to her and says, "Oh, you know, uh, let's talk about the beans. Let's talk about the uh, the price of fruit." And then, uh, oh, and by the way, I I was um, I, I'm a sleepwalker, and that's why I was acting so strangely <laughs> last night. And I don't have my meds. I'm gonna go get some right now. And of course, on the way, he <laughs> takes a great fall um, uh, while he's fighting the moth. Uh, that's a you know, was acting like a gadfly? Is that what, how, how it works? <laughs> it's sort of acting um, like a, a, a po- it's acting like Pawkins did, I guess. It's it's funny because it, it he he ends up in bed and he's still swatting at the fly <laughs> or the the moth, and they restrain him. And then I was thinking, you know, this is how I, when I was a kid, I lived in a you know way up in the woods far away from every, everything, and there would be mosquitoes. Oh, boy. And, man, mm-hmm. you cannot imagine what it's like to sleep without a net over yourself, yeah. having your face exposed to giant mosquitoes coming. And no matter how many you kill, there's still more. Oh, man. And basically, you end up, like, slapping your face and raging at the air just like the way he does. Yeah. If it's an invisible, um, ghostly moth, it would be pretty annoying. <laughs> um, and so when they, when you say it takes a dark turn, Mister Jim Moon, you're right. When he has his arms strapped down and the moth is still crawling over his face, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah, terrifying. Oh, horrifying! It's horrible, right? Yeah, it's so so bad, and. Now he lives his days in a rubber room. <laughs> Which the way the world's where well, unfortunately the doctor was a blockhead. Yeah. <laughs> and couldn't see to indulge him. And so 
there's that element of kind of almost like you know detached sadism on the part of the doctor. <laughs> there's no moth there. Get it off me! Get it off me! She's kind of you know it, it's one thing to be um, in a terrible torturous situation, but when there's someone supposedly a doctor who's to help you is standing by letting it happen, that makes it worse. <laughs> Do you think that if they had wrapped his face, that it would have solved it? No, you, you found the moth under the bandages. I think oh, you're right. Oh, under his skin, that would be the next one. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. what I was thinking of, you know, is that the, people do get these delusions, right, that there's uh, there's insects under their skin, and they, they cut themselves to get, get them out. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, I mean, this is, this is the horror that you see in Alien, right? Um, the imagine, imagining, oh, my God, that thing's inside, inside me, right? It's why it creeps you out so much. This... This bug that cannot be destroyed. It's um, it's curious too because at one point it's described as being a moth, but it's also described as having the wings of a butterfly. Um, and the the where he first sees it is on on a uh, table that's very colorful on mm-hmm. tablecloth. Um, so it, he sees it as a movement of the 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 color of the tablecloth, and he's seeing it through. Um, both eyes, right? He's got both eyes open. It's very distinctively mentioned. He's got one eye looking through the telescope, and the other eye is sort of not seeing, but looking, it's open and looking at the tablecloth. And that thing that he's looking at, I imagine, with his right eye through the the microscope is, of course, another moth, isn't it? Because that's what he studies. So he's seeing seeing two moths, he's seeing a dead moth, (laughs) And a live moth in both eyes before he focuses all of his attention on the live one that's actually a ghost, which is kind of funny. <laughs> it, it's also a revenge story. All those moths that were murdered, <laughs> 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 they come back to get them. <laughs> Stick a pin in them. Pin them down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can read this multiple ways. I think that's what's so great about it. I mean, you can do the literal reading. You can do the the psychological reading. Uh, you can look at it from the scientific angle. There's there's just a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And yet it's very readable. It doesn't feel, feel dense like some of the stories. It, you can read it at a surface value and get a lot out of it that way, too. And it's very short, too. I mean, there's a lot yeah. going in just a, It's five pages or six, seven pages, something like that. Very short. Uh, I... I, 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 this is why I like Wells so much is that even in a sort of a sketch of a story, like we did, we did another one. Uh, I think Mr. Jim Moon, you were in on that one, the door in the wall, right? Yes. Yeah. Now that one actually has the same thing happen. There's a guy who takes a great fall into a pit. In in that case, it's in London, and uh, he goes through this door um, that he thinks is going to be wonderful, um, and it turns out that it's it's his death. Or is it, right? There's that wow. question at the end of the story is, wait, is this all in his head? Or is this, uh, uh, is this half a dream or what, what have you? It's, yeah. Uh, but here, it's much more nasty because Happily is still alive. He's still in that rubber room. And that moth is still plaguing him. I imagine he's strapped in a, in a uh, what's a suit that keeps your arms from moving. Yeah, straight, straight jacket. jacket. 
straight jacket. He's in a straight jacket and he's still trying to bite at Bob. <laughs> <laughs> horrible. He's very Lovecraftian in that sense. I have right? that. I have that sense too. It felt like a Lovecraft story in some ways. It's just that moths are not usually the, uh, or maybe Mothra. It would have to be right. <laughs> some sort of. Mo- you could get squid scientists and. Sure, that would work. Just translate it pretty easily. Yeah, but you you wouldn't see a, a squid on your on your dining room table necessarily. <laughs> I guess not. Maybe he owns one of those big wall aquariums, and it's. Right. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> or the green monkey is. Yeah, it would be. Make well, it's, it's like the rats in the walls. You know, it's kind of yeah. That closes. You know, they they say I killed and ate him, but it wasn't. It's the rats in the walls. The rats they cannot hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think you know the 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 superficial way of just reading this story, which is probably the best way. I mean, if we go too deep on it, it sort of will break down. I think, but mm-hmm. I just think that the end joke is so <laughs> it's so much. It shows it what it is, right? It says so now happily is spending the remainder of his days in a padded room, worried by a moth that no one else can see. The asylum doctors call it hallucination. But happily, when he is in his easier mood and can talk, says it is the ghost of Pawkins, and consequently a unique specimen, and what well worth the trouble. It's <laughs> <laughs> a cosmic joke. <laughs> he knows how to leave the story good. Yeah, yeah that was a great ending. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Mm. I got nothing. It's pretty It's pretty insubstantial, this story. It's just worth reading, I think. I it's didn't not, think I was going to have this much to say about it. I'm surprised about it. <laughs>